morning. If you have a Bible, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 today, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verses 1 through 26. If you need a Bible, slip a hand up. We've got some ushers coming down the aisles if you need one this morning to borrow Ecclesiastes 2. Thanks for being here. Thanks for those joining us online and those in traditions and in kindred. I also want to take a moment and welcome uh, Lucas, Pastor Lucas and Melissa. Uh, they, drove, they started driving, let's see, on Friday from Austin, Texas, went to Mound City, Kansas, the first leg of the trip, and then 12 hours from Mound City to here, got here at five o'clock or so last night. So they're here <clears throat> in their house. I don't know where they're at, but they're somewhere in the building. But Lucas and Melissa and Paisley and Maverick and Thatcher, say hi to them if you see them. Um, make sure it's them. You know, you might see somebody you don't know and say hi to them, but that'd be okay too. Um, thanks, Amy, for reminding us about Feed My Starving Children. If you haven't signed up, you, you guys might remember this a few years ago when we first did this. We asked for 1,000 people. Remember that? And we had too many. Uh, we actually had over 1,000 people that participated. So uh, we just need... <clears throat> Excuse me, we just need 500, so if you're available on that evening, I encourage you to sign up. <clears throat> Last week, I started a new series called Insatiable. And the word insatiable means an appetite or desire impossible to satisfy. Solomon is the author, and uh, he was conducting this experiment of life. And what did he find? Hevel. Hevel, everything is hevel. Our English translations say meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, is what he said. Hevel literally means a, a, a vapor or smoke or a, a mist. Solomon wasn't saying that this life is meaningless. There's great meaning in life. Don't misunderstand what he was saying. What he was saying was, in a figurative sense, life is fleeting, it's it's unsatisfactory. It's hard to grasp. Remember when I talked about the smoke billowing from a fire and, and it looks solid and you go to reach for it and you can't get a hold of it. That's what he's saying life is like. It's elusive. We also learned that time is the ultimate eraser and death is the great equalizer. There's nothing new under the sun, he says, that will satisfy. We are born with this innate need to be satisfied. And what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. His creation plan was brilliant. He built within us this, this deep void, this need that cannot be satisfied outside of him. He created us with it and offers to fill it for us. And yet many, if not all of us at times, don't believe. And so we, like I said last week, we go on this hunting trip, attempting to be the first one ever to capture whatever it is outside of God that will finally give us meaning in this life. If we could choose a theme song that would most accurately tell the story of our lives, it might be, I can't get no satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try, I can't get no. 
We get to peek in on, on Solomon's notes. Um, I think of it like a journal that he's written in and, and you, we find that journal and we get to read uh, as he tests various things and experiments with life to find an answer for all mankind. But let's not lose sight of the fact that Solomon is looking at life from a human perspective, not from this eternal perspective. And so some of his conclusions make more sense than others. And let us also remember that Solomon was, was kind of looking back over his life. This is a guy who had experienced it all. Fame, money, power, sex, accomplishments, and everything else you might imagine he would experience in his great adventure to find satisfaction. The purpose of Ecclesiastes is for us to look at his life and to take heed. Realizing that while the world that we are living in and, and, and many seem different than the world that, that he lived in and what he experienced, it's the same in that it is still lacking in its ability to satisfy. That has been the same throughout history. Solomon is writing from a place of search and emptiness. Let us learn from his experiences. What is authentic? What is true? What, what is right? Let us find encouragement and hope knowing that there is an answer to all that Solomon and we are looking for. There is an answer. There is hope because he took the time to, to look back over his life and report what he had found. We are able to look forward in our lives and to see what really matters. So let me ask you, what brings us lasting purpose and meaning and happiness. Notice I didn't say temporary, I said lasting. Because we all know that temporary purpose, meaning, and temporary happiness can be achieved by simply rearranging the external things in our life. True and lasting purpose and meaning and happiness is acquired by rearranging the internal. To understand chapter two, let's begin first by looking at the last three verses in this chapter, because I think it'll tee up the other 23. So starting with verse 24, and then we'll go back. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from, from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Chapter two, here we go. Three experiments. I will tell you up front that experiment number one is gonna take me about 80% of the message. Sometimes when I start writing a message, <clears throat> I have the first point and, I, and when I, by the time I'm done with it, I'm like, oh my goodness, that's gonna be 80% of the message. And so point two and point three are a little bit shorter, but you'll get the point. There's a lot in experiment number one. So remember Solomon's doing these experiments of life. What can I find? And this is what he says, start in verse one. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. 
but that also proved to be meaningless. I will test you with pleasure. He's not talking about God. He's not saying to God, I'm gonna test you with pleasure. So, so who is the you? The you is life. I will test life itself. The pleasure hunt can be defined as the attempt to find happiness and satisfaction in physical and sensual gratification. Pleasure is fleeting. We know from various studies that short-lived excitement and happiness in the moment, you know, you know when we have those moments uh, uh, when we get really excited or we buy something or we get something new or something changes in our life and we're, we're super excited and we have all this energy and happiness in the moment, they say, experts will say within two years, it's gone, that's gone. And we find ourselves back to reality, a familiar place an empty place. Whatever we thought was going to work was just a rush, a surge, and it all goes away. We are all prone to an illness called anhedonia. It's a psychological condition whereby people lack the ability to experience pleasure and satisfaction in things that they once did. And the disease is not limited by age. It is the result of chasing so hard after so many things in order to find satisfaction in this life that we become numb to the very things that once brought us pleasure. It begins at a very young age. When a child has learned to enjoy things for a very short period of time, it's not their fault, it's the world in which we live. We are bombarded with solutions to our emptiness. A child, therefore, is conditioned that nothing works at a very young age. And so begins the chase. Is there hope? Yes. We can model for them the hope that we have in Christ, and the hope that we have in the gospel. It is the one and only thing that will satisfy. So verse two, he goes on and he says, how about laughter? Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? He thought to himself, if I can just laugh a lot, I can make my unhappy life happy. Surely that will work. So he indulges by attending every comedy show, right? that is available to him, maybe he tried G and PG and PG-13 and R and rated X comedy to laugh thinking that maybe just a good, a good belly laugh, a good chuckle would, would wake within him this lasting joy. Here's a question for you. Is laughter a bad thing? No. I hope not, or I'm in big trouble with God. I like to laugh. I find humor in almost everything. Laughter is a gift from God. The world is too serious. <clears throat> you may not realize, but I use humor sometimes when I preach. Many, many of you have mentioned that you appreciate me using humor in my messages. I'm gonna tell you something now, in 30 plus years, that I've been in ministry. I've had maybe two people 
that have come to me and said, there is no place in the church for humor. There's no place in the pulpit for humor. And I just laughed. Because I think, why is it okay for us to walk outside of these doors when we're a temple of the Holy Spirit out there and we're a temple of the Holy Spirit in here? Why is it okay out there to laugh and not in here? At least some. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, was once chastised for using too much humor in the pulpit. And he said, if you only knew how much I was holding back you would commend me. <laughs> Proverbs 17:22 says this, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Medical evidence supports the value of laughter. It releases happy hormones, it releases endorphins and reduces stress hormones of cortisol. Laughter dilates the inner lining of our blood vessels and improves circulation by 22%. Your immune system is boosted by 40%. At a cancer treatment of America, they're discovering that laughter is one of the treatments that they're using. Solomon's trying to figure it out. Laughter is important, it's from God. It's not a bad thing. What Solomon is saying, he thought laughter was gonna be the golden ticket. He thought it would fix everything. That it would fill the pit in his stomach and the emptiness in his heart. And what was his conclusion? Laughter is madness, it's foolish. It did not do what I wanted it to do. Many of modern day comedians have spoken publicly about their battle with depression. It has been said that for many comedians, humor is a counterphobic response to the darkness and sadness they feel. Their intelligence helps them put a funny spin on their despair. Did you know that about comedians? Jim Carrey said in an interview, when I live life without medication, I live life out of a low level of despair. It doesn't work. Laughter is not the means to an end. Its source comes from the enjoyment of life found in God. It was meant to be an overflow response of what's happening in us in our relationship with God, not a response leading to overflow in life. Well, laughter doesn't work, right? He's saying. Let's try something else. Verse three. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So he's continuing in this experiment. Laughter doesn't work. He said, I'm gonna try wine. Have you noticed what is said when you clink glasses, maybe at a wedding or a gathering? There is this assumed connection between alcohol and being cheered up. Now, hear me when I say this. We cannot use this verse as a, to put a stake in the ground and deciding whether alcohol is okay or not okay for a believer, a follower of Christ. That's not the point here. 
He's simply saying, I thought wine could cheer me up and lift me permanently out of this empty life. I thought maybe I could drown out my sorrows or, or at least take the edge off. And what did he find? He found out when he woke up outside of the city gates in the back of a chariot with a new tattoo. <laughs> wine, like so many other things in life, did not hold the power to solve the mystery of life. The day after Christmas, Lori and I... Um, drove down to Des Moines to see some friends and, and to see my siblings. And when we were down there, we got a hold of my siblings and said, hey, do you want to meet us for breakfast? And, and they said, sure. And so we went to this restaurant called Mullet's. Now, immediately, you probably already have an image in your mind, and it's probably fairly accurate. This is down by the river in Des Moines, and it's, it's literally a hole in the wall, but they have really, really good breakfast. And so we went there, and it was, it was earlier when, when most people were there, so we, we were there gathering. But about 9 o'clock, there was a line of people, so this would have been on Tuesday morning after Christmas. There, 9 o'clock in the morning, there was a line of people that were starting to come in. And um, one thing I noticed as I looked at them is many of them looked hungover. And there's a menu in this restaurant that I've never noticed before, I've been there several times, that says breakfast drinks. And what I discovered is all these people that are coming in after maybe been out all night or whatever is going on, they, they're ordering breakfast drinks maybe to kind of slowly come back to reality. For me, growing up with an alcoholic father, it wasn't a laughing matter. It was a matter of sadness for me. Knowing that whatever it was that they were trying to forget or make go away the night before, would soon be knocking at their door once again. Soberness is a harsh reminder that alcohol, when it's used for the wrong reasons, this is the analogy I can think of. It's like a, a shaving band-aid. You know, if you're shaving and you cut yourself, guys, and you put that little itty-bitty band-aid on, it's like a shaving band-aid trying to cover a gaping hole a gaping wound. He's saying it doesn't work. Verse four, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and, and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were, who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and had a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. There's so much here. I don't have time to unpack it all. But what we do know is that Solomon was chasing hard when he built houses. He built a temple. He built a kingdom. He built a family. Maybe if I just do a lot of things, that will work. I did this and I did that. I undertook, I built, I made, I planted, I bought, I owned, I amassed, I acquired, became I, 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 I. All of this to find his identity 
in what he did instead of who he was. And what I do instead of who he is. And maybe if I keep so busy, I won't have to deal with the pain of this life. I can run from it. I had all of the money and all the things money could buy. I was still empty, he said. John D. Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough money? He answered with just a little bit more. What about things and possessions? Some of you are going to fact check me right here. It's okay, because I fact checked myself this morning. In the last 50 years, the average size house in America has tripled. And yet Americans have more in storage units than any other country in the world. There's enough storage space. I told this one to Lori and it got complicated and so I wanted it to make sense. There's enough storage space under the roof of storage units for every American to stand under the roof. That's how much stuff we have. Out of the global total population of children, America makes up 3.1%. But our kids have 40% of the toys. Every year, the, the, the average American discards, you ready for this? 65 to 80 pounds of clothing. We spend more in America, this is on average, you're gonna say, no, that's not me, or I don't, I don't throw away that many clothes, or this isn't me. On average, in America, we spend more on shoes, jewelry, and watches than college education. Over 100 billion. None of this is to kill the American dream. It's a simple reminder that money and things are not the magic satisfaction pill. For two years, maybe it'll last. And when we hear all this, I don't know if you're minded this, but when we hear all this, um, immediately we start thinking of other people. Yeah, I've noticed like how they spend their money. I've noticed how much they have. I notice how much they waste or what they wear. And all. What about us? What about our hearts? But again, it's not about all of these things, is it? God gives us money through his provision. It's about how we use what he gives us. Are we using it for his kingdom or are we using it for our own kingdom? Are we given faithfully to the Lord's work through our tithes and offerings? Are we sacrificing like the scripture teaches us to do? Or are we withholding from God that which he has given us for our own wants and our own desires? The satisfaction of wealth is not in how much you have. It's in whose it is. His summary of experiment number one, it's a chasing after the wind. 
we feel it for a time, but we, we can't grab a hold of it. Money and things are not the fulfillment of satisfaction. Verse 10, I de- denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Listen, he was the wisest, richest, most powerful man to ever live on the face of the planet, and he said, I deny myself nothing. One of the things that he's referring to here is women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The quick math in my head tells me that's 1,000. So we know on the list of pleasures that he alludes to is sex. With that many women, I am guessing he is not interested in a deep emotional connection or relationship with any of them, right? He's not at all interested in what makes a thousand women happy. He's most interested in what makes him happy. If you have a thousand women, you can have a different woman every night and never see them for another three years. This is all about him. He believes during this experiment that having all of these women will bring some degree of pleasure and happiness. Conclusion? It too was empty. Don't conclude from these first 11 verses that God is a killjoy and doesn't want us to have fun or doesn't want us to have pleasure, that you can't laugh or, or you can't have a drink or you can't have sex. God created sex to be enjoyed for pleasure and procreation in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. God is all about joy. The problem is that we have believed and we think that we have figured out a way to make what God has created and given us to enjoy to make it better. Better by using laughter for the wrong reasons. Better by drinking too much and abusing alcohol. Better by taking the beauty of intimacy within the marriage and we take it outside of the marriage. Thank goodness men cannot legally have a thousand wives nor can women have a thousand husbands. That's not in our day and age, is it? But what we do have is something similar. We have porn. In a way, it's the same thing. We're using what God intended for pleasure within the context of marriage and making it all about us, thinking and believing that, oh, this will work. This is it. It will help me feel valued. It will never deny me. It will never be too tired. It will never have an excuse, only to discover we have taken a beautiful thing and manipulated it for our own good and our own pleasure. I think in many ways we understand Solomon all too well. Verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, And what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Experiment number two, wisdom and foolishness. I'm simply really just going to read these verses, verses 12 through 16. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. 
What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So he tried pleasure, he tried everything, and now he's trying wisdom. Pleasure doesn't work. Wisdom doesn't work, he's saying. Now I'm talking about earthly wisdom. So what then? Experiment number three, hard work. Verses 17 through 26. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Verse 20. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another that has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless, a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and the anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to the hand and over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It brings us full circle from where we began. Verse 25, for without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? It is a lie to think that Christians are the only happy people in the world. That if a person doesn't read their Bible, if they don't pray, if they don't attend church, they cannot possibly be happy. We know that isn't true. There are many who don't know the Lord who seem to be successful, happy, and content. A person might find happiness and pleasure and satisfaction in this world apart from God. A person might find happiness, pleasure, and satisfaction in this world apart from God, but it will not last. It cannot last. Because at the end of the day, every person lays their head on the pillow with one thing in common, a God-sized hole in our heart. And then the thoughts go like this. When everything is quiet, something isn't right. Something's missing. 
Maybe you're here and you might admit that you have chased a lot of things in this life and you're discovering it, it doesn't work. You need Jesus. And I would love to talk to you about him. And maybe not today, or I'm, I'm available, grab me if you, if you want to talk about that. Or call the office and just say, hey, I want to I talk. For those of us who already have the answer to the God-shaped hole, but we keep pushing Jesus aside, believing he cannot possibly be the answer. Take some time maybe even today and reflect upon the words that you've heard and read back through chapter two. Is there one small step you could take? Is there a giant step that he's inviting you to take? So you can live in the truth of who he is and who you are in him because you will find everything you're looking for. Here's the one thing. It's a question. Want to enjoy life? Stop chasing the things of this world and start chasing after God. Father, thank you so much for um, your word. Thank you for Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes and just the rawness. And, and for us just to be able to literally, like we're reading through his journal, and he's done all this for us. He, he's done all the experiments. He's tried everything. Nothing's worked. God, help us to come to a place in our life where we believe that. And that we don't set out to say, oh, well, he couldn't find it, but we can. In the end, it's all the same. God, help us, Lord, to turn our attention towards you, to look to you for hope, for satisfaction, for joy. Thank you, God, that you are the answer. May we believe that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.